This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Dara McCashin about what imposter phenomenon is and why we get it. Welcome to the show, Dara. Thank you very much. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this. I think it's a really important topic that um, I know I didn't know enough about when I was a grad student or a college student, either one. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. I feel like saying my name's Dara and I'm an imposter as well, but uh, (laughs) it seems to be a phenomenon that gets us all nodding and interested. But um, yeah, I suppose my own background is in the world of psychology. I um, I suppose I originally was in sociology, social policy as an undergrad. And as I say, I, I found the light, saw the light with uh, psychology. I did my PhD in uh, digital mental health. So asking, could we use technology to um, intervene with traditional talking therapies for kids and I was always interested in the good and bad of technology for different sort of psychological outcomes I had done a, a master's in, for, in forensic psychology um, and I suppose like a lot of areas in academia we go where the funding is and we go where where new research topics arise and a lot of my recent work would have uh, more kind of in the area of, I suppose, research advocacy and the whole topic of academic mental health um, really came to the fore in a European Union context, 2017, in and around the time I started my PhD. And I kind of put my hand up at a meeting in response to the, the conversation about mental health and well-being um in a, in a sort of policy meeting and i've never really been able to escape it since so um i'm currently chair of a uh, working group within a cost action and a cost action is a um it's a european network that essentially just tries to build um networks surrounding 
particular topics. So ours is all to do with academic mental health and it's called Remo Researcher Mental Health Observatory. And my day-to-day job would be assistant professor in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University. So uh, that's me. And I'm also a fellow within the Anti-Bullying Centre in Dublin City University as well. So lots going on, basically. I like to ask people how they sort of fell into their career, but it sounds from your intro that it was just sort of one thing led to another. Pretty much. Um, I have been fortunate to, um, I, I, I think just post-PhD, um, things went kind of linear uh, in ways that I was told they wouldn't. So I'm very privileged and honoured to have had that pathway. Um, but I suppose prior to um, my PhD and, and master's, I, I was very much unsure as, as to whether I wanted to be involved with psychology. But no, I mean, I mean, I, I'm always keen to, 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 I suppose, source opportunities and 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 bring together disciplines and networks. And um, I think that's where I derive a lot of my own passion and excitement, which can often get lost when you're in the the rigmarole of academia and the the admin and whether there's an imbalance with teaching and research and funding and the usual things that that can weigh heavy on on particularly early career academics um i've 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 tried to find a balance there you said a few moments ago that you were tempted to introduce yourself by giving your first name and saying (laughs) i'm an imposter um is that something that you've ever done with in any of the programs that you're in? Is that something that you encourage people to just out yourself? <laughs> kind of, in a way. I mean, I suppose, the, well, the, the first thing I, I always say is, like, I'm not a professional clinician. Um, granted, a lot of people in the academic world will be aware of this, you know, just because you have a specialism in a, in a in a topic at PhD level doesn't make you a dispenser of professional advice, uh, but sometimes that message can get lost. But at the same time, what I do like to do in in talks to do with this this particular topic is pretty much do something like you suggested. I mean, uh, I remember I was I was looking through my slides for a talk that I did on on imposter phenomenon last July, and I actually had a slide that said. Um, and I stole this ethically because uh, I asked of Dr. Hugh Kearns, uh, who's an educational psychologist that does a lot of kind of um, intervention type work with with academics and PhD students. Um, and he does this thing and when he walks into a room or when he's given this talk, he'll say, and of course, there is one imposter here today. I'm not sure if you saw them on the way in. Um you know, really and truly, it's a, an amazement to me that they haven't been found out. Uh, and he just does this. He builds it up and builds it up to, to make the point that if anyone in the room, if your heart rate is increasing or if you're kind of going, oh, my gosh, I think that could be me. It's just a very powerful exercise to see that everyone sitting beside you has the exact same experience. Uh, so I, I remember emailing Hugh asking, could I could I use one of his slides? Um, Cause I was so inspired by that. Cause it's very unusual in kind of learning and development or webinar or training sessions to get something. So I suppose 
personal and intimate to oneself that is shared across, you know, academic hierarchies, personalities, ethnicities, and so on. This thing that we're initially terming imposter phenomenon is so common and and pervasive that it, it seems to almost go unsaid. So anything that you can do to out yourself as a as a, a self-labeled imposter is very powerful for yourself and others watching. I know you said you're not a clinician, but in a room like that where you could see that everybody's starting to look dismayed yeah. or concerned or something, would you be worried about the one student who didn't? That's a good question. I've never actually thought of it like that. Um, I suppose I, I wouldn't be worried because if there is a... And we, I suppose we can all think of different typologies or different cliches, whether they're th- true or not. That person that is hyper-confidence, um, rightly or wrongly, about their work, about their progression, about their ambitions, uh, for whatever reason, it is always A to B to C. It's a nice linear progression and great, you know. It doesn't have to be a a, a sense of imposterism throughout Um but I suppose we do know from some of the research that has been done on it that there are like high, high numbers um, of those that would absolutely identify or experience uh, these sort of feelings of, of being an imposter. There's two terms out there, at least in America. There's imposter syndrome, mm. which is very commonly um in in the states uh and then there's imposter phenomenon mm. are they two ways of saying the same thing or are these two different things um they are the same thing in terms of what we're referring to and i'm very um although phenomenon as a word if you haven't had your coffee in the morning and you're flustered it's a big word and then academics are very annoying in how they always use acronyms so to be saying ip all the time, Bart Simpson's jokes aside, is not helpful to our listeners. So, but I still stick with it because imposter syndrome has, brings with it different connotations. Um, and it, 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 you know, language matters. It's a fascinating story, as I understand it anyway. Imposter phenomenon originated in 1978. So, this was with actually clinicians, Clance and Imus. So that was the first paper. So it's kind of 1970s, yeah. And it was, I actually have their their definition here. They said, despite facts and trends to support otherwise, individuals feel intense feelings of self-doubt, fear of being exposed, and a sense of that they've been somehow, or that they've somehow tricked their way into their field with peers unknowingly overrating their competencies. And... Uh, this was with a predominantly female professional sample, high-achieving female professional sample. Um, and for over the decades, it seemed to become par- popularized, perhaps by the self-help industry, by the corporate world. And slowly it became imposter syndrome. It'd be very interesting to map when and where that happened. But syndrome is, is medicalized language. It's unknowingly pathologizing something that very w- may well be 
a normal response in the first instance to, for example, a new job, a new project, a new team. Um, and when we get into, and, and look, there's always been a debate in psychology about, about um, like, for example, depression, you know, is it, do we get or have depression like we do a disease and that kind of, you know, there are sometimes helpful uh, messages with that, you know, it, in terms of help seeking behavior, if you broke your leg, you would seek help to have it mended. Uh, so if you're feeling broken emotionally, would it not also make sense to go and seek help? Those are nice parallels to prompt people to seek help, particularly those, for example, men, um, there's a problem with, or there's certainly a difference with help-seeking behaviors there. Um, but with imposter phenomenon versus imposter syndrome, I, I, I worry with the, particularly with the evidence base for interventions or for even just understanding it conceptually, I'm always wary, and not least because I'm, I'm not a clinician, I'm always wary of giving people labels that they may hold on to or, or internalize in a, in a problematic way or think, thinking that they have something and they must be the ones to go off and fix it, you know. Um, and perhaps later on we, we might talk more about, you know, the, the adaptive response, which could be living with this phenomenon that we're calling imposter phenomenon or thinking about uh, the where, the when, the why it emerges and stuff like that. So as I said, in a nutshell, language matters and um, always trying to avoid um, pathologizing people, really. It seems like syndrome sounds like it's happening to the individual and phenomenon sounds like it happens in certain environments. Yeah, it, it, that's true as well. Yeah, I mean, it's more it's more multi-level in that sense. And like anything, most debates in 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 topics like this with psychology centers around some people that are focused too much on the individual then maybe some people that focus too much on the organization and then others that focus too much on the environment or the the governance structures or um excuse me more evolutionary perspectives and you'd be unsurprised to learn that it's likely an in complex interaction between all of these um and that's a, i suppose that's another advantage of imposter phenomenon as, as a kind of a catch-all description that we can begin that conversation about what is it then about each of those levels that seems to be cultivating these sometimes very intense and consistent feelings across not just academia i'm not sure if you've ever googled imposter and celebrities there's so many celebrity quotes out there about more or less the same thing uh, you, you could be forgiven for thinking it's a new, a new doctoral student or a new professor and a new job. You know, the same feelings are there. Before we dive a bit more into um, some of those things that you've broached as uh, future things we can talk about today, because I would love to, can we describe what it feels like to experience this phenomenon? Yeah, I mean it's. Everyone will have their own version of it, I suppose. And, and that original description by, by Clancy Imes, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, it could well be Imes, but uh, just that sense of feeling you're going to be found out. And of course, there'll be different thresholds 
uh, you know, really, really intense um, versus kind of like consistently bubbling under the surface. But broadly speaking, it is feeling that, you know, you'll always have an excuse as to why you're you're not good enough and that actually you're a fraud, you just got lucky. Um, so I suppose even in my own my own head or down through the years, that thing, I, I, that would resonate with me. I, w- I would, I would um, reduce things to what well, I just got lucky with that funding. And uh, if it was someone else that, that it, they would have done a better project. Um, or, and language like, you know, any day now, someone's going to come along and they'll, they'll, they'll they look at the totality of what I've done, and they'll finally, finally find me out to be the, the, the fraud or the imposter that I truly am. I shouldn't be here. That that type of self talk. Um, for others, it, it might be more comparative. Uh, for others, it might just be, uh, really creative ways of discounting. Actual successes, and that's at the heart of the tension here that despite objective evidence to the contrary you still find a way of um discounting your achievements and indeed in kind of dr hugh kern's work uh, i think he has a freely available book on on this ebook rather um and there's a great cycle that he describes that you know if you think of someone that's you know f- fresh out of university and um if they're kind of feeling that they don't know their place, that they're out of place and they create a reason, okay, I must go and do a master's to make myself competitive. And then they get the master's and then they start looking for a graduate position and they might get that graduate position. And all the while through this journey, they'll be saying, I shouldn't be here. That This is, this is too much for me. Uh, I, I have no competencies whatsoever. I shouldn't be here. They're going to find me out any day now. And my boss is going to come in and say, what, why are you even here? You you need to get out. So they have to create a reason. Okay, now I need to go and do a PhD or now I need to go and do this course or now I need to go and get this job or earn this money to kind of overtake this feeling of being an imposter. Um, and it's amazing how, how, uh, how creative people get with the, the reasoning that they give themselves. It's like, oh, I just got lucky with the Masters. Or everyone in that course did well. So it's not. But a year or two before that, that person would be would have been obsessing. It's like, I need to get this Masters to, to get to the next level. So those are among some of the patterns that I've uh, experienced myself, uh, that I've heard from others. Um, and no doubt that there's, there's kind of different iterations of that from 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 different fields for example it's quite big in in the um in the medical profession as well there's some literature there um and one of the quotes actually that i used in a talk was by in fact I'll, I'll i'll read it to you and see if you can guess who it is no matter what we've done there comes a point where you think how did i get here when are they going to discover that i am in fact a fraud and take everything away from me I'd like to guess what prominent person that is, Christina. Um, it sounds like it could be anybody. I don't want to guess. <laughs> Who is it? Well, see, I, I always, I, it's for an academic audience that I would be using the quotes. They're always ridiculously surprised that it's Tom Hanks. Um, that like someone 
with such consistent uh, competencies in, in, in the movie world that has a outright imposter ridden quote like that uh, like when are they going to discover that I'm in fact a fraud and take everything away from me despite the objective evidence of all his Oscars and all his his uh, illustrious career so it's it's again it, it is one of those things where you go okay that's that's uh, that's something that resonates across the board it's um, both relieving and sad yeah <laughs> um, I'm wondering as I listen um, is there a physical health consequence uh, it sounds like one of the consequences um, is that it robs people of joy and of um, a, an ability to appreciate their own success. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's a physical toll. I'm not aware of specific research that would have looked at imposter phenomenon and like at a causal level with kind of physical outcomes. I mean, one important distinction to make here would be there is an ongoing debate you know, is so one of the most consistent findings and more reliable areas within psychology because psychology gets a has had some bad press, rightly so, in recent years with things that aren't replicating, and um, with the you know issues with the predictive power of of psychology in the real world, and and they're important questions. But of the things that that we are confident in. The big five personality traits are chief among them. So, you know, there's five of them, openness, extroversion, conscientiousness, neuroticism, um, and agreeableness. And they really are traits that manifest in weird and wonderful ways in our lives. And we can all think of the person that's really, really high, highly agreeable versus someone that's really disagreeable. Have you ever tried to plan a holiday with friends, you'll instantly see these traits in action. The conscientious person wants to plan everything. The other person wants to uh, be a bit more, or the opposite end of that is someone that wants to be a bit more free flowing. One person's highly extroverted, loves the idea of meeting uh, random people, whereas others, that would be their idea of their idea of hell. Um, and there is a debate about whether imposter phenomenon is a particular manifestation of neuroticism. So neuroticism is is you know the experience the experience of negative emotion in in in, in many different ways, and you know that hasn't really been fully unpacked yet. Um, my sense uh, there has been some good studies shown that unsurprisingly, you know th- there is a. Um, it is highly correlated. So those that have high levels of neuroticism are perhaps more likely to also report experiencing imposter phenomenon. So how this links back to your original question is that if there if there are high levels of neuroticism, which can also uh, be associated with um, uh, different types of anxiety or, or, or mood issues, that can over time, of course, be linked to um, more physiological or psychosomatic issues so even the basics of how the nervous system works if we do have a, a barrage of negative thoughts some of some of which include you know anxiety about the future um or some of which might include um thoughts about one's uh, sense of being an imposter 
that over time, for example, increased heart rate, increased cortisol levels, um, or even that sense of fatigue that we get from having to deal with all our intrusive, negative and anxiety-provoking thoughts. Um, and the more and more you, re- you read those quotes, and it was interesting, your observation there, that, you know, it's, it's relieving, yet also sad, because there is a lot in, in it when you hear someone talk about their experiences and i remember hearing quotes from from other from other celebrities and you're kind of going god that is sad that you know here's a rock star or whoever that can't enjoy the amazing unique talents and experiences of a world tour for example simply because they think that they shouldn't be there because they're going to be found out um that's you know if it's heavy hitting for us imagine what it's like for for their physiological responses so yeah it would stand to reason that that at a kind of a at a, at a mechanism level that these types of thoughts over time where they become really intense to the point that they're impacting adversely impacting behaviors um there, there, there may well be risks of of um of more physical responses but as i said lots of lots of research still still to be done to establish causal causal pathways you mentioned earlier on that some of the initial uh, research was um, looking at women, mm. um, and you uh, talked about how men often are discouraged from because of social stereotypes from from seeking help. Um, I'm I'm wondering as there are more conversations such as the one that we're having, um, and there's more research coming out, if more people will be sharing how it felt when they first noticed it. I um, shared with you during sound check that um, I mentioned in grad school to a professor that I trusted many of the feelings that that uh, you describe as imposter phenomena. I didn't know the name for it. Mm. I didn't know that it happened to a lot of people. And the professor responded with, well, if you don't think you belong here, maybe you don't. Mm. And that was the first and last time that I brought that up mm. um, because I didn't want – to be flushed out based on a feeling that I hoped was temporary mm. or manageable. Um, how does normalizing the conversation make it more possible that you can get more research about this? It's a great question. I mean, I'm just terrible to hear. And sorry, but before I even answer, I'm curious if, if I could ask, what was your initial res- your reaction, your gut reaction to that comment or to that response for your professor? That I hadn't expected to be happy at grad school. I had expected it to be meaningful. Right. And so um, I didn't feel like there was a point in continuing the conversation with the professor, but it also shut down for me probably more realistic avenues to open that conversation, such as talking to other grad students about whether or not they were feeling that way and finding someone who could normalize it for me without fear of, well, maybe you should just quit, Mm -hmm. which is the right decision for many people. But that wasn't what I was worried about. Should I quit? It was, am I doing this right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you're being, (laughs) I've I've two reactions. One is like, if I'm being at my most charitable, um, you know, one could potentially conceive of a scenario where, 
somebody is having really implicit and explicit thoughts of, is this really the right gig for me? Such that that may be telling you something and maybe telling the supervisor something, you know, if there's such levels of doubt, maybe that kind of assertive question of, you know, and ideally compassionately expressed, should you be here? Have you really thought about whether this is right for you? And, you know, you could understand a, a conversation like that, that, that may be necessary, uncomfortable and confronting as, as it may be. But then on the other hand, uh, in the context of the high prevalence of, of, of imposter phenomenon and what you're kind of now understanding as being a constellation of, of all those kind of factors and, um, and feelings of, of imposterism. Um, I, I think the normalization of it is, is, is the first step in, I suppose, in a very therapeutic sense, although it's not necessarily intended as such, just being able to sit with it. And, you know, even in getting into, I, I, this is another area I've just kind of fell into. I, I'm, I'm in the process of kind of uh, designing a study on it to, to, to understand its, its prevalence and how it manifests with personality. But um, when I've discussed it in the context of it arising in our Remo Cost Action Network, I kind of set about reviewing some of the literature on it and doing a little webinar on it. And it just kind of grew from there. And one observation I have is, particularly post-pandemic when everything went finally back to in-person, um, you would describe the phenomena. You talk about well-known, kind of well-known celebrities and uh, I give different quotes and sometimes I'll, I'll give a quote about I really shouldn't and I'll start swearing be here da, 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 da. who said that and I'll show a picture of myself because I'll get a bit of imposter feelings the night before a big talk for example and this thing happens in the room that you get people nodding little nods that aren't your normal conference nods you know they're engaged they're, they're like nodding as if they haven't been allowed to nod before as I termed it recently, um, as if like finally someone's talking about this stuff. And you'll ideally do some sort of breakout exercise that invites people where they're feeling comfortable to, in effect, just like you asked at the, at the, at the, at, or at the beginning, you know, should we out ourselves as an imposter, that that often happens. And you get this thing in the room where there could be a postdoc, there could be a master's student, there could be a professor, there could be someone working in um, research admin, there could be different stakeholders. And the power that it ha- that, that the collective sharing of, oh yeah, I have that all the time. It's, it's been with me for years and here's how I manage it or here's what I love about it, hate about it, here's, here's how I use it to understand this, this and this. Um, and then when I kind of bring groups back, you just get this sense of, okay, I haven't told you to do anything. I'm not a clinician giving you advice. You have all done, you have all collectively provided the value here by simply acknowledging it, sitting with it, sharing it with one other person or a group of people, and then we've just come back. Um, which to me, and the power of that as a process, and I've seen it in particular two or three times this this year at kind of 
big events. Um, one was the um, uh, ESOF, uh, it's a big science festival in in Europe that was in Leiden in, in July. We did a session there. There was another session we did in Porto and then just kind of small. And, and then also the, the webinar that, that we did with Remo kind of so in total a few hundred people but just seeing that manifest is just incredible um and it's 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 great to be able to just say okay well you know there's so much we don't know about this uh yet there's such fascination with it how can we leverage that ethically um in such a way that people get something from it as well because often people might come in with okay fix me or um, tell me what this problem is all about. And going back to the theme of language matters, it's important to try and dispel myths in the process as well. The Tom Hanks quote mm. didn't have a happy ending to it. It wasn't, this is how I felt and this is what I worried about for the first five years of my career mm. or uh, in the first 10 years of my career, it, it doesn't have a point of U-turn mm-hmm. um, where he started to feel ownership of his career and it doesn't have a resolution of, but then one morning I woke up and had confidence. Is there a, an intervention, whether um, on a personal level or in a group level that, that can help people or once you get imposter phenomenon, is it yours to keep? Yeah, it's, it's good phrasing that you use there. I mean, if you if you take it in, in two ways, I mean, there are a multitude of um, kind of self-labeled effective interventions out there that haven't really been tested um, and kind of, uh, and, you know, kind of corporate self-help, unregulated self-help industries, um, whether it's social media that's propelling them, whether it's, um, you know, pick your your favorite unregulated self help industry, and you can be guaranteed that they'll have a, a course or an ebook or a or a toolkit that they'll be selling you to say that this is how you, you know, extinguish the inner imposter. And that kind of you know empowerment language, you know, if you can choose to beat it and all of this. I've no doubt that there's likely a lot of value in, in these things. But there's another issue there, which is like, to what extent is it down to the individual to fix themselves or cure themselves, which is also this medicalized approach as well, isn't it? Um, we should also be holding institutions, employers, our environments accountable as well, such that we can do something positive to at least reduce um, the risks of imposterism. But the second part of your question there about kind of, you know, is it always going to be round? I think that's a useful way to think about it. Um, and, and interestingly, when you, when you listen to people that, you know, are aware that they have high levels of trait neuroticism, that they've experienced and regularly experienced throughout their life bouts of anxiety. Um, and they often talk about 
almost befriending it or like understanding it that like this will likely never fully go away. So how do I manage it? How do I kind of create a space where I know what my risk factors are? I know what my protective factors are. Um, I know the things that I have to work on. I know the things that uh, support me. And knowing that is probably more empowering and indeed evidence-based across time. Um, so I know there's a lot in that, but um, I suppose in short, the, from an evidence-based point of view, the types of things that, that, that people do use to understand the, the, um, the many ways that the imposter phenomenon manifests uh, would be, for example, cognitive behavioral interventions, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, understanding specifically for you, what is it between your thoughts, your feelings and your behaviors? Um, how is it that they're connected in such a way that might be uh, worsening the experience of imposter phenomenon? And indeed, something where there's a clear link to problematic behavior. So really strongly avoidant behavior. So you feel like a fraud, so you don't do the core tasks of your research position. Instead, you, you, you avoid going to the lab or you appear to be busy with all these small, unnecessary, but numerous subtasks. These kind of behavioral outcomes that are likely rooted to intense cyclical negative thought patterns and feelings of really low self-worth, even just understanding that cycle can be incredibly empowering um, and can be the doorway into challenging, underpinning kind of negative core beliefs, such as self-worth and and self-esteem. And, and look, there are many, many ways um, that different talking therapies will address, address those processes. So um, learning about the role of trauma, childhood, attachment, all of these complex things. I, th I think kind of talking therapies, evidence-based talking therapies will of course be of use to a range of things, including including imposter phenomena. Um, but it's also important to kind of like what we're doing now, just having a peer-to-peer -peer conversation about these things and a, a support structure there that says, well, maybe it's not just about what you and I have to do to manage this really annoying sense of being an imposter. Maybe actually going for that coffee once a week with that group of people that kind of recognize this is an issue and want to call it out and sit with it in that way that almost becomes therapeutic or what can we do for example job orientation or or um or that the first day of someone joining this lab or what can we do to to really reduce the risks of this being an environment where we're all silently walking around with feelings of, of being an imposter. I think those are the sorts of things that, that we should um, certainly prioritize because there's another ethical issue with telling people to, you know, address the complex psychological roots to things when we know access to psychological therapies is expensive. 
um, resources are not plentiful across the many the many um, institutions and countries and cultures. So, so that's important as well, and that's perhaps also why there's there's such um, there's been such an emergence of all these other all these other resources. So there's a lot out there. Um, so I, I I'm always just uh, try to get people to be skeptically cautious yet optimistic about the things they can do. When we're talking about what the individual can do, um, there will definitely be limits if they find themselves experiencing this again and again in a particular environment. Mm -hmm. When you, when you do your research and you do your presentations, are there any specific things that you suggest that happen um, at the institutional level, meaning the professors can implement certain changes they didn't even realize they could or should do, mm. or the university program could offer certain um, things that are more caring to the human being. It, it appears to me that any human being could be stressed to the point where they started to have a, a confidence crisis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I'm just recalling that there was an article in Harvard Business Review by, um, let me just get the name in case people want to check it out. It was last last year, um, Tulshayan and uh, Berry. Stop telling women they have imposter syndrome was the title. Um, and it, it, again, it, it's, it's that message of let's not pathologize something and put it back on, onto the individual to go and address when there may well be institutional or supervisory factors that are, that are, uh, worsening the problem. As I said earlier on, it is always going to be multi-level. There's of course going to be something going on at a policy level that's definitely going to be institutional factors and of course there's going to be our own individual factors our personality makeup our attachment style our our, our childhood history and so on and they'll interact in complex ways and the million dollar question is how <laughs> you know how do they how do they intersect so we can intervene uh, ethically and in an evidence-based manner but to your question about um what that's uh, middle level there, so supervisors, institutions. I suppose it's not rocket science. Doing the thing where there's at least a critical awareness built into, for example, orientation sessions, um, uh, kind of peer-to-peer support models that say, look, this is a common phenomenon. Here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. And here's uh, where we're at in terms of supports that you should access. Um, and that hopefully can cultivate a, a culture where people can call out or address or uh, on a bad week can say, look, I'm really feeling like a fish out of water here and I'm feeling this, this and this. Uh, would there be any chance that you could support me with this thing? Um and, I, and when that works, you, almost, you almost miss it in action. So I've seen people that say, even in passing, they might say, oh my God, the imposter syndrome is big this week because I'm writing this grant for this thing I'm never going to get. And a supportive colleague might come, up, might come along and say, I know you think that, but 
let me show you the roadmap that I used. And, you know, a sharing of best practice and all of a sudden that, that person feels on the same level and supported and small things like that go a long way. Um, and I know there's more creative ways that the people and, and just basic cultural practices where where you kind of smash hierarchical structures of, oh, well, this is the senior management and their uh, lunch and coffee habits. And this is the 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 graduate uh, team that sit here, a place where everyone goes for tea or coffee once a week. And there's, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, stuff like it, this, where organic conversations can emerge and, and people kind of can dispel myths in action. I, I think cultural practices are probably far more nuanced across um, across different areas and, 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 and different fields. But I think none of that can really happen unless there's that critical awareness at the outset. So my, my kind of message to uh, supervisors and, and institutions is, um, and as much as they can, like make, <laughs> so it's always a dichotomy between, okay, let's make people do this training. <laughs> We've all had the email from HR saying, you should do this webinar, you should do this. It can often go in, in one ear and out the other. Um, but we really do need to create a value structure there whereby um, building a critical awareness with particularly people at the the orientation or the starting, that, that warming period, because what happens then can be really predictive of what happens later on. So even got, even harking back to your your example that you kindly shared about disclosing those feelings to a supervisor, uh, it would be great that that supervisor would have had a critical awareness as to what might have been occurring for you. So as to use your language, it could have been normalized and you can sit with it and take a deep breath and be like, okay, that's something I can now at least try to detach from and I'm not going to internalize it further and, and, uh, and experience, um, even more negative consequences. So, um, those would be my initial thoughts. You've talked to us about how language matters and how you've done group work where, where people got to do this collective nod along with you and, um, does speaking it take some of the power out of it? If we hold it inside and we don't tell anybody we're feeling these imposter feelings, um, but we can we can speak it out the way you have your groups do when you when you leave the workshops. Mm. Do, does that take some of the power out of the hold that syndrome can have or phenomenon can have on you? I think so. Yeah, it, it's that truism of. Uh... It's a, a problem shared is a problem halved, uh, of course, extends to this area. And does that quote from, I think it's motiva- motivational interviewing. I understand what I say as I hear myself say it. Um, and look, you can think of this with any friend that might might be having a problem or m- might be just in an anxious flurry that's, you know, you have some downtime and, and, and you let them express themselves or you that person has the rant. It's just in ranting. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the content, does it? It's just about getting it out and, and making sense as to what's going on. All these things allow that 
process of awareness for, okay, I'm not an imposter. I just feel like one. Those are just words. But imagine if that's actually assimilated to that person's understanding. I'm not an imposter. I just feel like one. It's the first step in detaching from it and being able to name it for someone that has never named it before could be incredibly powerful. Um, And then being able to express it in weird and wonderful ways, whether they go off and have a few glasses of wine and and joke about it with the the colleague and go, okay, okay, this is what it is. Or whether they have a serious conversation with uh, a peer that's um, gone on to do a, uh, a different research project and they can kind of see how it manifests in, in, in that institution and things they could look out for to to try and uh, fight back against it. There are many things that just by being able to say it, we we can um, we can understand it, we can detach from it, and we can allow others to then share their version of it. So those to me seem to be the the the, the obvious advantages of finding safe and ethical ways to let someone express that. What do you hope listeners will take away? Um, I suppose that level of critical awareness that there's nothing wrong with them per se, um, that there are, there are things that they can do and that I suppose in a nutshell, that they would do something to it to, to maybe start that conversation with themselves or, or with others. Uh, and what do you... I presume you're going to ask what I meant by that. <laughs> um, no, go ahead. Well, I, I, I was just thinking, so if someone wants to start that conversation with themselves or others, it'd be like, I know those feelings that Christina and Dara are discussing here. Uh, and I know I've experienced them. Um, how, might, how might I challenge them or address them? Because I just thought it was, a, it was something that, is a part of me, or I would hope that the critical awareness of, of hearing about these, these, the, 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 the common nature of imposter phenomenon would help someone begin to try and, um, have more control over it, I suppose, without feeling that they're, that there's something wrong with them or that it's all about them. That would be one hope, I suppose. What do you hope this episode sparks? Um, do, do, do. I suppose in one ways it would be nice if, if it could just be a bit more freeing for people to be like, okay, it's not, it's not just me. You know, at the very least, it's not just me. That in itself can be like, uh, for something, for something that's such an internalized cognitive process, it's great that you can realize, okay, even the amazing Tom Hanks, fancy actors of the world have it even the esteemed professors across all these disciplines have it or experience it um that free nature would be nice because then that can just allow a bit of pause that deep breath and then go okay let's see what this is all about for me do you think we would relate to each other differently if we realized everybody was feeling insecure yeah, that's interesting because that, I often wonder, is that is that another barrier to 
to people's lack of disclosure about and if you think about hyper competitive environments and academia is that isn't it there's a crisis of resources in many areas and because of that everyone's competing for a limited pot of funding and a broken reward system and so on so anything that 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 could signal weakness uh, if that's even the right word is dis- is disadvantageous to the individual and there could be a feeling that even though there's this encouragement to to disclose a, a feeling of being an imposter that maybe that might not resonate with others or it might appear to the supervisor that this person is is uh um is yeah is weak to use that stigmatized word um and we know that 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 stigma even in 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 the broader mental health sense continues to be a barrier if i say i'm depressed feeling depressed i'm highly anxious i'm xyz that i'll be seen as lesser or weak or risk or and all these stigmatizing responses across the system as well as peers could manifest. Now, look, there has been lots of amazing positive work done across societies and challenging that. And we, we have we do see a culture of of mental health dialogue and increasing mental health literacy out there. But we also know that the stigma is is alive and well um, in perhaps more insidious ways. And there's probably likely, this is speculative, there's probably likely equivalent uh versions of that for imposter phenomenon um but at the same time be- because there's, there's so much uh, uh commonality amongst professions and different uh levels of professional disciplines there's likely a very safe level where people can say um yes look this is a thing and this is how we can address it and this is how we'd be happy to to start that conversation so that um, I think that would be one kind of happy common ground for for any area, whether it's academia, whether it's the legal world, marketing world, whatever, you know, what might be the first conversation that different people from different backgrounds and different uh, stages of their career could sit around and share what imposter phenomenon means or has meant for them. That's the sort of that's the sort of lunchtime talk that I'd like to go to. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. McCashin, and helping us understand more about imposter phenomenon. My pleasure. I'm Dr. I'm so glad we did this. I think it's going to resonate with so many people. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.